I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. My guest today is poet activist Dan Wilcox from Albany, New York, where he hosts the third Thursday Poetry Night at the Social Justice Center and is a member of the performance poetry group Three Guys from Albany. Dan's been a featured reader at all the important venues in the Albany, New York Capital District and the Hudson Valley. He's an active member of Veterans for Peace. He also publishes poetry under the imprint APD, which stands for various things such as Albany's Poetic Device, Another Pleasant Day, etc. The meaning of APD changes depending on his mood. He's published in many literary magazines and recently in the anthology American Society, What Poets See. His new chapbook of poems about Gloucester, Massachusetts has just been published. After I talk to Dan, I'll be joined by Gregorio Gomez. He's the host of the most notorious underground reading series in Chicago, which occurs at Weeds at 10 o'clock every Monday night. With Gregorio, we'll be talking about bilingualism, how bilingualism influences you when you're a poet, what it does to your reading and writing of poetry. Dan, you know, you you host an open mic mm-hmm. and, and you have your blog where you write about open mics. And I think of, of everyone I know, you appreciate open mics the most. What? <laughs> I, mean, I like them, but you really like them. Could you tell us something about what it is about open mics that really uh, Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just gotten to be a habit, you know, like uh, I don't know whether I appreciate them or not. Um, but uh, yeah, I... Uh, now I feel now I feel this obligation to go and document it. I was just on Cape Cod talking with this guy who's a documentary photographer, and he's like very encouraging about me creating this great archive and history of the poetry scene here in Albany. So it's sort of you know become um, an obligation to to document it. But I always tell people that you go to a poetry open mic and you're going to hear the most god-awful poem you ever heard in your life, and you never, ever want to see that, hear that thing again. It's total crap. Uh, or, and you just might hear the best poem or one of the best poems you ever read and you wish you had a copy of. And, but most of the stuff is somewhere in that grand middle, which is just sort of like yeah. stuff that people write. And I, I suppose that's what I like about it. It's, you know, people writing poetry and it's not, they're not all, uh, you know, none of them ever really are names that, that you would read about, but these are people, just ordinary people writing poetry, you know? Let's hear some of your poetry. Interesting you asked me about open mics because the poem I wanted to start with, uh, the poem I wanted to start with is actually one about Cape Cod and I just got back from a short little trip over there in North Truro and hanging out in Provincetown. And this is this is a poem from a few years ago uh, when I was over there on a visit and I happened to look in the paper and I saw there was a, a poetry and music, had to be music too, open mic uh, at a, a bar in Provincetown on Commercial Street called The Muse, M-E-W-S, not like the poetry, M-E-W-S. So I went there expecting the open mic. Well, it was during the season and they only do the open mic October to May. 
So there was no open mic there. But I mean, that doesn't stop us poets, does it, from you know, things that are didn't happen? We can make them happen. So I wrote this poem about this open mic I attended there in Provincetown. It's called Imagining the Muse. And as everywhere else, in every open mic in America, there are more guitar cases than briefcases, though Mr. Twelve String in a pink headscarf stands out. I'm sensitive where I am. No, the redhead with tattooed biceps is not interested in me that her poems about butterflies and kittens are metaphors crushed under work boots. Of course, there are songs about love and two different guys saying Judy Garland, and there are pop tunes I just never heard. Another poet reads from a marble composition book all teenage angst and outrage. I'm wondering if the cute bartender with the pink thong and vague flowers and vines tattooed between her breasts will ever come back to fill my beer when a host calls my name. And I don't know what to read. Realize I'm too heterosexual for this bar, these singles, this clientele. But read my poems about cougars and pussy anyways. And they all clap. They always do. I buy the redhead a drink after all, and it turns out she is the bartender's girlfriend. Nobody buys a book, but then they never do. I did a, a memoir, poetry memoir uh, reading one time, and um, I introduced the reading by saying that we all know that all writing is autobiographical, except if your spouse is in the audience, then it's art. <laughs> you know what I want to do? I want to read a poem from my latest chapbook. I'm going to leave the Gloucester note poem maybe for the end but um the coyote which you are very familiar with you wrote me a blurb it's a, just a little chapbook of six poems basically of uh, what happened was I was on Facebook this goes these poems go back a number of years probably about three years back over time the six of them evolved um and on Facebook there were this chatter from these suburban ladies over in Rensselaer County um talking about coyotes in their yard. I had seen them at night. So I wrote one poem. And then I realized that this poem, I needed a, a poem speaking from the husband's point of view, because that was from the lady's point of view. So I wrote that. And then I wrote another poem uh, based on stories my friends were telling me about, you know, how bitchy and, and snipey these um, housewives can be. And then I realized I was writing poems about a male coyote. So I wrote some poems about a female coyote. So before you know it, I had six poems here. So I'm going to read, first I'll read your, your blurb, um, which is really a, a, a classic example of blurbing. I get, can we say blurb? Is that a word? I guess it is. English, we know, you know, if you say it, people understand it. This is Charlie Rossiter blurbing my book, Coyote, uh, Poems of Suburban Living. Wilcox's insight into Coyote are particularly impressive, considering that he is an adamantly urban poet who has been known to take a sport coat along on a weekend camping trip. Actually, more than take it along, Charlie, I wore it. I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a denim jacket to wear, you know, like, so I had to wear my sport coat. So anyways, this is Coyote 6. So that way, if people are really, they wonder how I got to this point, 
the last poem in the book. I'll have to buy the book to, to see more. Coyote Six. Coyote puts on jogging shorts, headphones. He sweats like he's not a dog, follows the housewives. He likes their brassy t-shirts, their quiet desperation, their overweight anxiety. He smells their lovers on their thighs, can tell there is more than one, like pink vibrators next to their bed, more panties than days in the week. He grins, fantasizes. He grins, fantasizes attacking their husbands, moving in when the housewives collect the insurance, the retirement, the dental plan. <laughs> That's my latest from APD, um, you know, Coyote. So like I say, if people are curious as to how I got there. They can always buy the book. You can email me for the book at apdbooks at earthlink.net. APD books at earthlink.net. Great. Yeah. I remember to look at that. I don't really remember looking at that. So. Yeah. yeah Coyote is a fun little collection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had fun with that. Well, it was just sort of accident. I wrote, started writing these poems, and then next thing I knew, I had enough for a little chapbook. So I said, well, let me yeah. see how this works. Before Coyote, this guy from uh, Writer's Digest named Robert Lee Brewer was promoting this, and he would have prompts up during November uh, during the month of November in let's see it was 2010 and you're supposed to you know write a poem each day from these prompts I mean they give you a flavor of what this guy is like this is a quote from from him uh, he said this is all about fun and poeming yo okay so you oh get, yeah you know, what kind That's of cool. what kind of like corporate <laughs> asshole this guy is so I did it. I did it. I, I actually did. I hate the I hate writing from prompts number one, and I hate this thing that I got to do it every friggin' day. Two, so I did it, and I um, at the end I discovered that I had some poems that really would make a like little chapbook, and a lot of the poems were actually about the process of writing from prompts. <laughs> so um, I put together a little chapbook called "Poeming the Prompt." It came out in 2011, and these were just a selection from some of these. Um, and it also includes on the back mm -hmm. top tips for anxiety-free writing from prompts. So, oh, that's good to help people. That. So this this is this is a poem from day 27. The prompt was blame the something or other. All right. So my poem is blame the prompt. It puts us on the run. Lobsters flying west, wondering what's right, what's wrong. Why do we need permission to do this? We sat in that trap for weeks without agreement. Forget what they say. I'm ready to start to leave. Close the door. Turn the page. The next cliche. Shedding the shell. To grow another future containment. To shed that one too, stacked in a closet. No one wants just a love poem. We'll take the love. Leave the poem at the crossroads, that space with a hole in it we thought were safe. Then return home, new shoes, a new coat, covering us like the stories we told to leave. That was blame the prompt. Um, oh, I'll do this other one too. This is always a, this is always a crowd pleaser at open mics. On day six, the prompt was looking for something. So this is looking for cougars. <laughs> 
Looking for cougars is not what someone at my age usually does, and they do not have me on their kill list. But youth is cruel, not even leftovers on the bar. So I wait, like a house cat in the woods, looking for signs of fatigue, slurred speech, desperation in her eyes blurring the distance. It is not an easy kill. Which, which one of us will taste death first? She will sleep unbathed, my whiskey breath on her nipples. In the morning, the plains will be dry and empty. All right, I'll read one more from that. I was reading a book, a book about shamans. And it was a really interesting book. Um, it actually was a real, um, one of those academic anthropological studies of shamans and stuff. So it was really well documented and covered all different uh, native cultures and stuff. Fascinating book. Um, so this is from day 30. The prompt was to learn, write a poem about learn or not learn a lesson. So this is called The Lesson. The shaman said we would learn to control the weather, see through people, heal the sick. I said, the flyer said, poeming is fun. I want to be a poemer, want to get words up every day in the morning, if I can, or at least at night before porn. He said, you will wake the dead, call dear to your bedside, cure women's problems. I said, I need a pomade, a, a prod. He said, a prompt. I said, show me naked women and I'll write all night. The poet speaks the truth. Ah, yes. Now, what other what other sources of inspiration do you have in addition to naked women and <laughs> and prompts, which you really don't like to use? Uh, you know what I mean. What other what what other things inspire your poems? I don't um anything. I mean anything. Uh, it's the world out. I mean, Allen Ginsberg was once asked if he was an academic. Not academic. He was he was asked if he was a arts for art's sake poet or a political poet because he'd written lots of political poems and also written some artsy poems. And um, Ginsburg said he was an arts for art's sake poet, but he writes about everything out there in the world, and politics is one thing out there in the world, and so he also writes about politics. So I thought that was a good answer, and also justified for me. Um, writing poems that respond to political stuff. Yeah. Know? So uh, I felt comfortable then writing politi political poems. And I have a, a fair amount. In fact, I've always, always tried to put together uh, some major book that would just be like my political rants and stuff like that. You ready to want a political poem? Sure. All right. This one... Um, this is not what really so much as a rant. This actually is a little artsy, this political poem. And it was written for the, um, in 1995, actually, uh, on the 50th anniversary of the first test of the atomic bomb. Uh, the bomb was first tested July 16th, 1945. So people kind of forget that anniversary, but some people don't. At that time, um, actually France was testing uh, atomic bombs in the Pacific. And Greenpeace was out there with their boats trying to interfere with it. Um, so what I do in the poem, halfway through the poem, the poem um, sort of turns inside out. 
And that's based on this concept that the scientists, when they first tested the bomb, they didn't know what was going to happen. And some thought it would like rip a hole in the, in the, in the air. Another thought it would, you know, change the uh, dynamics of the universe or something. I had no idea what unleashing this power would do beyond killing people. So that's sort of what happens in the middle of the poem and then it changes. So this is called, and this came about, my family and I were traveling in uh, Ireland in July of 1995 and Cork City had a sign as we went into Cork City there was a sign that said uh, this was a nuclear free zone so I inspired this poem it's called cleanse this city on the 50th anniversary of the first explosion of the atomic bomb few visitors show up in the desert except some nuns with protest signs in Washington DC Someone throws symbolic blood on the parts of the Enola Gay the government dares to show. On the 50th anniversary of the A-bomb in Ireland, we drive into the nuclear-free zone of Cork City. And France sails into the South Pacific to do it again, and Greenpeace says no for all of us, while in Ireland, not one bottle of Beaujolais is sold on Bastille Day. Back in Albany, whole neighborhoods begin to glow against their wills. History turns inside out with the hole ripped in the wind over Japan in August. And now fishermen cast everyday nets into the South Pacific because the French with nothing to test never left Paris. The entire planet has always been a nuclear free zone. The Smithsonian hosts the flower exhibit and no one shows up. In New Mexico, the desert is as quiet and empty as it has always been, and there is no marker, no plaque, and there is more light under the stars than there could ever be under any cloud. Hey, that's neat. Yeah, making another version of history. We, that'd only happen. And, and you just um, read the book Hiroshima, correct? Yes, yes. Actually, actually, we're doing this the day after of the anniversary, the 70th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. And each year, and as our friend Tom Nattel started many, many years ago, we read the uh, Hiroshima, John Hersey's wonderful book, uh, Hiroshima in Albany. Um, it took us, it takes a little over three hours to read. As well, you know, Charlie, we once, yep. you, me and Tom once read it twice in one day, as a matter of fact. And uh, yeah, we had a handful of people there, but we did get coverage in the Albany newspaper and the Times Union. So um, we were there and uh, we read it again. And uh, I think it's an important event. You know, it's disappearing. People could walk by and they don't know what we're doing. And I have to explain it to them. And they go, oh, <laughs> one or two people who could get the impact of what of it, you know, as, as a, yeah. action to just promote peace and remind people of you know how horrible we can be sometimes and, and you've been doing this for about 20 years right or longer yeah well i don't can't remember when tom first did it in the first year he did it uh and i think there were some gaps when he didn't do it uh -huh. one or another uh but there were quite a few years when he did it there was a year we did it uh, both at the social justice center and at the the peace pagoda um, and then after Tom passed on, uh, I started doing, I think probably I did, oh, I must have done it in, um, in, uh, 2005, the year he died, because that would be a, right. an even numbered, uh, 
uh, anniversary date. So I think I did it then. Oh yeah, we did. You know what? Here's one of the great ironies that was inspired me to do it. The Park Playhouse in Albany each summer has these free plays in a nice little amphitheater type thing. And that year, uh, they were since the 60th anniversary of uh, of the end of World War II, 1945. They were doing South Pacific. So we did the reading of Hiroshima in the park at the park entrance where people were coming in to see South Pacific. I thought, oh, it was perfect. So. Excellent. Yeah. So I've been, I guess I must have done it every year since then. I have to check my files and see if I missed any year. But yeah, so I've, I've been doing it, the Carry On Tom's tradition for 10 years now. Are you yeah. reading it solo? No, 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 no. People join me. Right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yesterday we had only five people read because a couple people just went on and on and on and on and on. They 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 got into it, so I didn't stop them. I you know I let them go. Yeah, no, we get people show up and you feel like reading. They read for as long as they want and then they stop. That kind of thing. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we got time for one more. All right. Uh, and uh, whatever you like. All right. Well, uh, I'll read this one, then you tell me. This is a, I'm going to read from my forthcoming poetry collection called Gloucester Notes. That's from Foothills Publishing. I actually have the proof I'm working on this weekend um, and from Michael Zarnecki. I'm going to read this poem. This is, this is more of a poem that works on a page, but I think there's some funny lines in there, so it can be uh, understood. Uh, and it's a, um, a pastiche of uh, Charles Olson's The Kingfisher. Since I'm reading about Gloucester, a lot of Olson references in this book. I love Maximus' poems, but I really don't understand a lot of his other poetry, and particularly the Kingfisher. Now, it always reminded me of Amos and Andy. So, <laughs> so I, this is my version, and it references the way Olson numbers and misnumbers the different sections of this poem. He's got Roman numerals and, and, and Arabic numerals and everything. So that's you'll hear some of those references in there. So this is called The Kingfisher, or... Amos and Andy meet Charles Olson. One, got any change? As Amos said to the Kingfisher, who got change? And when the change come, then it is time, time to simonize our watches. Two, I thought on the E train, the Kingfisher said to Ruby, they sprinkled Coca-Cola on our heads. Roman numeral two. Amos has lost count. The kingfisher say, where is this very thing that is Roman numeral one? Three, the moon shines east, shines west, but Roman numeral three. The kingfisher say, the bullshit are bullshit. The moon shine best. No one knows. Five, do one. <laughs> so, so I hope that's elusive enough to to be a Charles Olson kind of thing, you know, all that. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, folks, I'm Charlie Rossiter. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here, uh, joined by Dan Wilcox of Albany, New York. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. Now I'm going to be joined by Gregorio Gomez, Chicago poet, who happens to speak two languages. And I'm going to talk to him a little bit about what that's like, 
when you're a poet, when you're writing poetry, when you're reading poetry, when you're thinking about poetry. Gregorio, what's going on in your head that's different than mine? <laughs> that's a scary question, but I'll ask it anyway. Well, uh, you, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, re- a brief background. When I first migrated to the U.S., uh, being a monolingual, you think only one way. Like you think in English, only one way. That's the only thing that you can think of because that's all you know. And the more that you begin to learn a second language, <clears throat> then you get into this battle in your head. Uh, I'm thinking in Spanish, but I'm not fully capable in the English language to speak to you in English. So I go from Spanish thought, translate that thought into English, then speak it mm-hmm. to you. And so there's that battle that is going, that's constantly going on. And one language pronunciations is different than the second language pronunciations, thus you get the accents. Right. Because you pronounce one, you use words, the mix, the, 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 the combination of words differently in one language than you do the other. And so now you're, in, you're battling all of these things. You're constantly battling it. <clears throat> And then you get to the point where you stop doing that. Mm-hmm. I can switch from English to Spanish and back to English without a second thought, without tripping. And this is what we call now a fully bilingual person, mm-hmm. someone who is, 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 you know, is, speaks both languages equally in the, from their head mm-hmm. without having to make those, that battle of translations and so when you say what's going on in your head is that the only thing now that battles is whether I want to make a the emphasis of a phrase or word uh, uh, in a poem in English or in Spanish where does the emphasis you know how the impact of the phrase is gonna is gonna sound be like in one language or the other. It's, it's a, it seems almost like you have one big vocabulary to work with. Yes, in a sense. In a sense. Um, but, it's, it's, it, but as writers, we have one big vocabulary. Yeah. We, we do. I mean, I like to think that I sculpt my poetry because I have this big block of words that I begin to chip to away with my pen until yeah. this curvy looking thing comes out and it turns, what we, you know, and I call it a poem or somebody calls it a yeah. poem. But now my advantage is that I have that same black of letters in another language. Yeah. You know, because the vocabulary is the same. If I say pen in English, it's pluma in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not two sets of vocabularies, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's just one set of vocabulary, just in a different language. Yeah. You know, and so I I ask. So when I'm writing, a, 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 when I'm writing a poem, and I make up my mind, which way that poem is going to go, to whom, to who, am I addressing this poem to? That's where I begin to, yeah. you know, whether or not to how, how much Spanish I'm going to mix. Am I going to sprinkle it with yeah. a couple of words here and there because I'm addressing mostly the non-Spanish speaking community or am I going to you know you know saturate it and you know it, yeah. because now I'm speaking to to the more bilingual community because 
a lot of this, you know, I mean, this, I've, I've met blacks, uh, I've met whites, I've met Italians, I've met a lot of people who, because of, we're now, in, you know, we're so global today that, that a lot of people speak Spanish, or at least understand it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, well, try the opening of this poem, the first couple of stanzas, maybe. Title, yeah. Open Vein, and, and, and he goes, We dip the pluma into the open vein of our fallen guerrillero and give birth to el movimiento insurrección. Our weapons es la poesía y canción. You know, so, I'm, and so now I'm addressing somebody who's more bilingual. And, and in this particular poem, Open Vein, I am addressing mostly my community. Mm-hmm. I, am, I am throwing a message out to them Although you may understand that, you know, being, you know, uh, being non-Mexican or non, you mm-hmm. know, non-bilingual, and so now I am addressing them with specific words, uh, so that they get, so they, so they know that I am throwing them a message. All my poems are messages, and you know, yeah. in English or in Spanish. Yeah. So, well, those, so those, that's why that's why I, I sprinkled this one. After plume for pen, which was easy, what uh-huh. was the next couple of things that oh, came up? Oh well, the, the, well, the, the, the last word is guerrillero. Yeah, what's a, that? A, a, well, he's a, sounds great. <laughs> I mean, he's so smooth. A, you well, yeah, well, you know, it's a guerrilla fighter. Oh, okay. And it's a guerrillero, uh, followed by el movimiento insurrección. That means the insurrection movement. You yeah. Know, you know, and, and so I and, and so. But if you use it in Spanish, el movimiento insurrección has a whole different, you know, an insurrection movement. It just doesn't have the same bravado that it does in Spanish. And, and so that's why, like, uh, the, another line that I use is, is, is the silkiness of piel canela. Now, I'm addressing that line to my female, you know, sisters. And I'm, I'm also addressing the color of them. I'm calling them by your 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 um, cinnamon color, nice. the silkiness of your cinnamon nice. skin. Yeah, you know. So I'm both politically and romantically addressing them. I'm, you are also you know that kind of thing, and 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 and, and so that, that's why it doesn't sound like uh, your 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 silk your silk you know uh, your silk. Uh, a cinnamon skin. It doesn't sound. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have that the resonance of of of, of a poetic. It gives you a good sound advantage. Yeah. Right. Exactly. To be able to use the Spanish. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, that's the other you thing too. Being a bilingual person is that you you have the advantage of um, of accentuating your own you know your 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 your, your pronunciations in in English. You know, if you know how to how to uh, a Corinthian leather, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I think Ricardo Montalban used to use that right. on purpose, right. you know. <laughs> now, there's something also I think of uh, when I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm I'm, je- I'm jealous of people who can speak Spanish mm-hmm. because in 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 the Spanish speaking poetry, you run I run into things like bleeding guitars. Mm. You know, there are these images and and. When I notice, I seem to see a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking it must be something in the language that helps that to come out, to come up for you. Well, you you, you have uh, to you have to put the the, the, the languages in context. Um, uh, Spanish is uh, is 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 uh, is, is the uh, branch of of Latin, 
you know, part of the we're part of the Romantic languages, Portuguese, mm -hmm. French, Spanish, you know, that kind of thing. Where English, where, where everything sounds el romance, muy bonito, that you, know, you do that, you flowery kind of thing. <clears throat> where English is more of a Germanic, is is a is a chop 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 chop. Yeah, you know, it has that uh, uh, stronger, very you know, very heavy language uh, in. In, 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 in the language itself is, is, is brutal to learn because it has rules and regulations that break rules and regulations that it has that and then he, and then he has uh, uh, um, uh, various levels of those rules and regulations that it took me yeah. years to pronounce a word called Goethe it's, it's spelled G-O-T-H-E mm -hmm. Gothi to me, that's yeah. Gothi, but it's a German language. Well, you, it's you, called Goethe. You you uh, explained to me how to pronounce. Was it Jorge? Jorge, yeah, yeah. And you know, I, yeah. I looked at it. It's, yeah. What J O R G E? That's it. And I'm going. What is this? I better call Gregorio. It's you George. Know. That's all yeah. it is. Jorge. <laughs> George, you're right. But it's, but it's, and here's the other thing about 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 particularly Spanish in particular, uh, is that we pretty much we pretty much. Uh, although it's a, you know, it's a, it's a conquering language, but we pretty much pronounce it as it is written. You know, the, the Spanish language is pretty much pronounced as, as it is written until you begin to add those mixtures of other languages like the Nahuatl language that's spoken by the, hmm. by the, by the Aztec and, you know, that guy. Um, we start throwing in, because in Mexico we had various conquerors, you know, uh, the Spaniards being one, the French being another. So we so we began to take our, 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 the Spanish language, then began to absorb, as English is doing today, uh, absorb uh, um, phraseologies from these other languages, and and English that was happening to English, and and a lot of the purists, you know, hated, but English has had to uh, reinvent itself from from the from from the 1800s uh, when when they begin to go west they met the spaniard that they met the spanish speaking person they met the, the navajo mm -hmm. indio they met the you know the chiroquai they met the iroquois i mean they met all these people who spoke different languages and in order for them to communicate they had to learn their their language and as they're learning the language, they're bringing those those words back to the east, and those words are now being incorporated because there's no other way to say paper, you know. In in, in you know, so they, yeah. so we begin to you know like lasso, yeah. Yeah. you know, people are using well or la riette, oh, yeah. you know, you know, in Spanish or in French, la riette is rope. Mm -hmm. So depending on, and so now we as writers we begin to. Explore Expand. all of, all, yeah. all of those things. I got one more question for you: Do you have a favorite or two of poets who write in Spanish? Well, um, there there are several, but I was influenced when I was a kid um, by Amado Nervo, who is one of the to me one of the most romantic uh, poets uh, in the Spanish language, who nobody knows. Okay. Yeah. Say it again. Amado Nervo. Hmm. Okay. I remember reading when I was a kid. Uh, uh, so he was there in my house. This book, and I started hmm. reading it. 
I didn't know what the hell I was reading, but it sounded delicious. Yeah. You know, it, you know, it sounded that when, like you say, it was like, ah, oh. I didn't understand the word because it was all this, you mm. know, up class, you know, this upper class Spanish. Because we do have, you know, the upper class Spanish, and then we have regular, you know, Spanish like mine. Um, that's one of my. That's one of my favorite. And, and, and you know, I, I, and, and other writers like uh, uh, who wrote Pedro Paramo. Um, they, there's there's a lot of people who are influenced who have been influenced on me, uh, and uh, but I. I don't, I don't utilize them as much as I should. Gregorio Gomez. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember... Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetry spoken here at gmail.com.